The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, we share a presentation from the Outdoor Industry Association to an outdoor product design and development class about the state of the outdoor industry. Well, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, As Andrew and Chase mentioned, I'm Kristen Freeney, and I work with the Outdoor Industry Association. Um, So my role with Outdoor Industry Association is uh, running our Emerging Leaders programs, which is essentially helping folks on-ramp into the industry, um, so workforce development, and then helping folks who work in the industry currently move up into leadership positions um, within the industry. Um, So prior to joining OAA just about two years ago, I was actually working at University of Colorado Boulder. Um, My entire career prior to OIA and the outdoor industry was in higher education, um, and my jobs were really focused on helping students kind of figure out what they wanted to do with their lives, um, prepare for those career paths, and, you know, land jobs or start businesses, whatever they they wanted to do. On the personal side of things, I I grew up near the Chicago area, um, and I I fell in love with the outdoors running on the Illinois Prairie Path, which is actually the first um, rail-to-trail conversion path in the United States. Um, And then I went to school at DePaul University in the actual city of Chicago, um, and then ended up working there um, for a few years before my husband and I moved out to Colorado in 2012. Um, And so now I'm working for OIA, um, living in the Boulder area uh, with my husband and my my two large dogs, um, who you may hear fight in the background here because that is what they do while I'm on Zoom. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and toss it over to Stuart to introduce himself before I kind of jump into my, uh, my slides and my presentation. Thanks, Kristen. Uh, Hey, everyone. I'm Stuart Lewis. I work uh, on OAA's government affairs team. Uh, My focus is mainly state and local, but I've been kind of helping out on some federal recreation stuff lately, uh, just because of wild staff changes. Um, Rich Harper is my other colleague on the government affairs team. He runs our department and uh, heads up our international trade program. Uh, I'm uh, also from Kentucky. I've been at OAA for like two years. Uh, I worked uh, in government affairs in Kentucky, where I was a um, a lobbyist. Awesome. Thanks, Stuart. Um, And I've included our email addresses here. As I said, I'm going to share this deck with Chase and Andrew, and they can pass it along. So if you have questions, um, feel free to reach out to us at any point in time. Um, So I want to start kind of with a quick overview of kind of who OIA is, because I I don't know if everyone knows who we are. So we're essentially the trade association for the outdoor industry. 
Um, we were founded in 1989 by 14 pioneering outdoor brands, um, and they're listed here on this slide. Um, and the aim really was to uh, create a collective voice for the industry. So at the time, most of these brands were pretty small, um, and they found that they really had challenges in trying to make headway and impacts with legislation and um, things of that nature when it, they were just a singular voice. And so they figured if they kind of joined forces and were able to approach um, policy and advocacy and, and create industry policies around um, with their kind of collective success and their collective size, that they'd be far more successful. Um, so essentially it was a strength in numbers sort of thing. And it was incredibly effective. Um, and that is why today we've adopted the tagline um, that together we are a force. So um, as of today, we have over 1,200 member organizations that are, are part of OIA. Um, and I guess the next question is kind of like, who are those members and who is the outdoor industry? Um, and I think it's, it's interesting because I think we're all pretty familiar with like the brands and manufacturers that create our favorite products and the shops that sell those products. Um, but there are, are tons of other kind of layers and, and buckets that go into this industry. Um, that includes guides and outfitters, um, nonprofits and conservation organizations, government agencies like state offices of outdoor recreation, parks and wildlife department, U.S. Forestry Service, um, and those are our agencies that Stuart does a lot of work with in his day-to-day. -day. Um, and then, of course, suppliers, so those who provide the materials um, that are used to make the products that you all are in this program to, to learn how to make. So essentially, the outdoor industry is made up of all the people, products, and places that make all of these activities in this orange box, as well as uh, several others, um, possible. So what does OIA do? Um, so we focus on three core areas to support our member organizations and the larger outdoor recreation economy. Um, we focus on thriving business, thriving planet, and thriving people. Um, in the interest of keeping this as interesting to you all, um, and in the interest of time this morning, I'm not going to dive deep into all of these areas, but I certainly encourage you if there are specific uh, initiatives that you find really interesting to check out our website or reach out to us via email. Um, I want this to be pretty applicable to a product design audience, um, so we're not going to dive deep into, into all of our stuff. Um, first thing we are going to dive into is the thriving planet, um, and this is, is certainly going to be of interest to all of you. Um, our biggest thriving planet initiative is our Climate Action Corps, um, and so that is a collective, um, non-competitive organization of brands who have committed to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions and to moving towards climate positive um, in the near future. Uh, and essentially what that's going to look like is this group of brands has committed to start measuring um, their, their footprint, um, to thinking about changes to their supply chain and production that can reduce the car their carbon footprint, um, and to grow creatively before they then move into the advocacy space. Um, so we've seen a lot of interest from brands of kind of getting into greening their own houses before they start advocating for, you know, climate-friendly policies um, and things of that nature. And so our Climate Action Corps is really going to focus in that area. 
the next uh, area I wanna talk about is our thriving people um, aspect. And that's really through our outdoor foundation, um, through our Thrive Outside Community initiative, initiative um, that is really focused on making the outdoors more accessible and more equitable and inclusive for everyone that wants to get outside. And finally, I want to jump back and talk about that orange circle at the top, which is our thriving business aspect, which is probably of the most interest to all of you and probably the resources that you'll make the most use of as students in this program. Um, so thriving business has kind of three key categories. One is policy and lobbying, um, and Stuart's going to dig deeper into this, so I'm not going to steal too much of his thunder here, um, but it's something that's really applicable to you and your interests um, as you're kind of exploring this career path is uh, the trade policy program that we run. So obviously, anytime you choose a material for a product or make a decision about where to um, source your product or manufacture your product, um, your product is opened up to different taxes, duties, tariffs um, that impact the overall manufacturing cost and impact what you're going to charge your customer. And so uh, one key aspect of our policy team is to lobby for industry-friendly legislation. Um, so when we talk about the China trade war and all of the punitive tariffs that have come into play, our policy team has been working really hard um, to mitigate the impacts that those are having on um, outdoor industry companies specifically. The second piece is uh, education. So, you know, the Skip Yell Future Leadership Academy is a program that I run, and that is a six-month immersive program for folks who work in the industry and are looking to take on leadership positions in the industry. And then we also have a pretty deep webinar program that covers like industry-specific topics. Um, you know, when there's kind of a, a hot new thing that's come out, you know, obviously with COVID, we did a lot of uh, uh, education around that. Um, but those webinars may be an interesting resource for you um, throughout your, um, your career at Utah State. And then the last uh, key piece of our thriving business efforts is in research. Um, so we have uh, a research team that goes out and does research for um, on the industry specific Specifically, a couple examples are the Outdoor Recreation Participation Report. So that looks at how many people are getting outside, the demographics of people that are getting outside. Um, we have the Outdoor Recreation Economy Report, um, which basically broke out uh, the economic impact of the outdoor industry. Um, and that was a huge lobbying piece that has actually um, moved us towards the BEA is going to be uh, analyzing the outdoor industry as, a, as an economic driver from here on out. Um, but that outdoor recreation economy report essentially proved that the outdoor industry has a significant economic impact um, and is an economic driver to some extent in all 50 states. And the last piece of research um, is our consumer view market segmentation report that came out a few years ago. Um, and that basically breaks down the entire industry, outdoor industry consumer base into seven different categories. And I do want to dig into that a little bit deeper, since that's probably something that could be interesting to uh, future product designers. Um, so as I mentioned, it breaks down the outdoor industry consumer base into kind of seven key segments. Um, and and gives you more information about how they recreate, where they recreate, um, how much money they spend uh, each year on outdoor recreation equipment, what their interests are, that kind of thing. Um, and so you can see here, you know, what percent of the population each segment, market segment makes up and how much they spend on outdoor products. Um, annually. So for product designers, I think this could be a really interesting tool. I've linked it at the, at the back of this 
presentation, um, but could be really interesting to dig into because obviously when you're talking about someone who is the achiever who's going out and hiking 14 years every weekend, bagging peaks and, and, and all that kind of good stuff, um, they're going to be interested in a different type of outdoor product that maybe has better technical features or is lighter, more durable um, than someone who, you know, is maybe the athleisurist and likes to take an occasional yoga class and is just looking for, you know, middle price point products um, that are going to last them a long time. So as I said, it's linked at the back end of the presentation. So I'd encourage you to take a look and see if you find any new information in that. Next thing I want to dive into is just COVID-19 impacts on the industry. Um, you know, this is a, a pervasive issue that we're, we're dealing with as a society. And um, just like every other industry, COVID-19 has had a pretty significant impact on the industry. Um, I also know this is something that Stuart is going to dig into as well. Um, so I will just touch on kind of some of the key stats um, that we have telling us uh, what's been going on. So the Outdoor Recreation Roundtable um, is an organization based in Washington, D.C., and they have been doing a good job of putting together data on COVID impacts to the industry. Um, and what they've found on kind of the bad news side is that 91% of companies have experienced production or distribution uh, disruptions. 79% of companies have had to lay off or furlough employees. And 89% of companies have lost revenue throughout this process. Um, I will say that it's not all bad news. Um, we are starting to see a recovery happen. And in talking to brands and manufacturers, they are kind of starting to feel as though uh, there is a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. The retail stores have been able to reopen. Um, and I think brands are maybe being hit somewhat less hard than they expected to be. Um, but obviously, that's all dependent on what happens in the next few months. On the positive side of things, um, there were lots of outdoor brands that shifted manufacturing to PPE, so personal protective equipment. Um, they worked directly with hospitals and first responders in their community um, and were able to save jobs by sh shifting manufacturing to that. Um, the cycling industry has been on fire since, uh, since the start of, of COVID-19. Um, it's, uh, if you buy a bike right now, you're probably looking at a several week wait to get that, that bicycle. Um, and so for the cycling industry, there really hasn't been that contraction that we've seen in, in other areas. And um, outdoor recreation is up. We're seeing more people than ever getting outside. Um, it is one of the activities that can be done um, safely in a lot of ways. Um, and so we're seeing folks get outside more for the first time and folks who were getting outside prior to that getting outside more frequently than they were in the past. Um, because of that, we uh, have partnered with a handful of other brands and groups to create the Recreate Responsibly um, project. Um, and that's just a way to kind of help educate those who um, maybe aren't that familiar with outdoor uh, recreation about how to get outside and still do it safely and responsibly in the time of COVID. Um, before I toss it over to Stuart, given my, my background in career development and career readiness, I think I'd, I'd be a bad employee if I didn't at least give you some data on 
qualifications that are important to outdoor industry companies when it comes to hiring. Um, I don't know exactly what point you're at, and you probably have some time left before you're going to be looking for jobs, but um, Oregon State University's Outdoor Recreation Economy Initiative did a study on several outdoor brands on what the qualifications they were looking for and what qualifications were most important when they were making hiring decisions. Um, and so the top five um, were subject matter and our technical expertise, which you're obviously gathering through this program. Um, passion for the organization's mission. Um, and it's interesting that that is actually separate than passion for outdoor recreation. So when you're going to apply to jobs, I'd highly encourage you to really look at the company and what their specific mission and their values are and make sure that your application materials align with that. Um, leadership ability and or potential. Prior industry experience, um, which is a little hard to get when you're a college student, but can be done through internships or, you know, working in retail roles, working in seasonal roles. Those all count as industry experience, um, guiding, Knowles courses, anything like that uh, really does count as outdoor industry experience. Um, and then culture fit. And one piece that was a little further down on the list that I think is um, going to be really, really important is just diversity, equity, and inclusion literacy. Um, we're seeing a huge push um, given, you know, the moment that we're experiencing in society. Um, the outdoor industry is experiencing a huge push around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and we're really seeing some, finally seeing some, some meaningful movement in that space in terms of companies um, making that part of their value statement, um, making that a key piece of their business imperatives. Um, and so I think having in that and understanding that um, is going to be really important um, as you go and apply for uh, outdoor industry roles moving forward. Um, with that, uh, here are the resources that I mentioned. Um, as I said, I'm going to send this to Chase and Andrew um, so that they can pass this on to you. Um, just some some research that you may want to access, uh, good sources for industry news, and then um, when you are ready to look for jobs and internships, some of the key boards that um, we in the industry utilize to find those jobs. And with that, I am going to hand it over to Stuart. So before I kind of dive in on our policy platform, um, I want to kind of go back to something that Kristen touched on, which is uh, our members and the idea that together we're a force. <clears throat> uh, I, I kind of mentioned that our, our government affairs team is slim. There's two of us. Uh, we, we do have some lobby, lobby partners in DC um, that work on recreation, uh, climate, conservation stuff and then we have an international trade consultant um but i guess the main way we get stuff done is through activating our members um we're only local in colorado and dc and you know legislators don't really care what someone from boulder thinks um when we're trying to get something done so we really need that those 1,200 members across the nation to reach out and activate, um, and they do, and it's awesome. Um, so like, uh, like Kristen said, something that's probably most applicable to you all is OIA's international trade platform. Um, we're re working really hard to eliminate the China Section 301 tariffs um, uh, that are, you know, punitive tariffs that are... Uh, on like backpacks, footwear, stuff like that. Uh, we're looking to rejoin the TPP. 
um, expand generalized system of preferences, um, miscellaneous tariff bills. Again, those are just things to like reduce incoming costs of uh, raw materials and finished goods. And um, I say raw materials too, because it's not just an international trade platform, it's balanced trade. We do work a lot with members that uh, manufacture here in North America. And um, like Kristen was, was saying during the COVID response, a lot of our members did shift to produce PPE. Uh, and a lot of those members are looking to keep that um, part of their business going. Um, so working to develop an, a North American supply chain for our members in the outdoor industry to produce PPE. Um, on the public land side, kind of going forward, we want to use our public lands and waters as a cornerstone of economic recovery. Um, you know, we, we know that uh, a lot of people buy gear to go play outside uh, and having places to play outside is the, you know, how they sell that gear. Um, additionally, there's, you know, the individual and community health. That, so um, not just the physical health benefits, but like the, you know, the climate community resiliency that's, that's part of a uh, public land strategy. Um, and we're also going to be working uh, specifically on civilian conservation core. Um, we see that as um, a way to one, do a lot of green infrastructure, uh, natural based climate solutions, but put a lot of people that were put out of work, uh, kind of back to work building experience, um, even in the outdoor industry. And a lot of this focus is going to be on the close to home recreation. Um, we'll touch on close to home a little bit later. Um, and then kind of again, going forward, um, kind of keep going on the conservation of public lands and waters, make sure that the, the store acts, the core acts, um, you know, some of those just preservation land preservation bills, um, move forward. Um, and then we're also going to kind of seek to restore some of the national monuments and reduce some of the extractive regulatory um, actions that have taken place. And then climate, uh, I know Kristen touched on that a lot, but um, we want the federal government to incentivize business to take bold action. Uh, so, you know, incentives for renewable energy and in the supply chain, cleaning the supply chain, stuff like that. Um, another big part of uh, the climate platform is uh, investing in parks and paths close to home. Um, so that builds low carbon climate resilient communities, um, you know, stuff like municipal tree ordinances that reduce urban heat island effects. Uh, and that also gives people places to play close to home um, and in renewable energy as well. Um, We've had a really huge win in the last year. I hope everyone's heard about it. Uh, the Great American Outdoors Act, um, you know, huge amount of money going to our public lands, um, but there's some problems with it um, that have been highlighted with COVID and the, uh, the biggest one is state and local governments have been pinched pretty hard uh, by the loss of sales tax revenue. So without that revenue, they don't have, you know, ways to fund uh, necessary things and parks and recreation is, is usually the first one to cut. So we're kind of worried that 
a lot of these local governments aren't going to be able to make their uh, a match funding they have to have for LWCF. So it's it's going to be interesting with local funding, I think, coming up. Anyway, um, on the state and local side, um, we work on state offices of outdoor recreation a lot. Utah has one. Um, I hope you all have the chance to talk, talk to Pitt and his team throughout uh, your, your time at Utah State. Um, uh, and then we've, we've done a lot of uh, work uh, working for outdoor equity funds. So these are funds in the state that, that are, um, you know, private business uh, donates into and it gets kids outside that are uh, in underserved communities. And then another big part of our work is the conservation funding mechanisms. Um, those are usually kind of ballot measures that are um, either referred to the ballot by citizens or passed by legislation that then have to be approved by voters. Um, we've seen a lot of wins um, with, with conservation funding. Uh, and I'll talk about that a little bit when we get uh, further down into voting. Um, but how government affairs kind of relates to, I guess, product development. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the snooze, which is specialty news for the outdoor industries, uh, outdoor trend report. And they identified kind of three trends uh, for products and durability, transparency, affordability that kind of overlaps with our sustainability. So working on um, making sure, uh, uh, supply chain is is kind of transparent and clean uh, that they're using you know good labor practices um, you know I guess kind of part of the climate resiliency is if you stop making uh, new stuff and use the stuff you have uh, that just kind of lessens the overall environmental footprint there's no shipping raw materials around and all that and then the affordability of gear um, there's been a lot of talk about that and that kind of directly ties into access and equity. You know, um, skis are expensive. Uh, backpacks can be expensive. Um, so just making gear that's more, of, you know, just in those three kind of realms and how that overlays with us. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, I'm going to skip those other two because I think I'd, Kind of forgot what I was putting in there. <laughs> um, so outdoor recreation in the pandemic, I'm sure you all have seen it's nuts. Um, you know, more people than ever have been getting outside, uh, but it's been tough for the industry. Um, supply chain ripples, people haven't been able to work to make things, so things haven't been getting to the shelves. Um, you know, just anecdotally speaking to the bike boom, uh, I have an uncle in central Kentucky that has a bicycle shop and he ran out of bicycles in April. Uh, and there was no way to get any because everything was shut down. Um, a lot of that, you know, and then because we've all had to be sheltered in place pretty much, a lot of the recreation we're doing is close to home. Uh, there's been a lot of wear and tear on our local parks. Uh, I know at least in Colorado, um, the, the parks, wildlife department has said that trails are getting weakened traffic on weekdays and holiday traffic on weekends the whole time. Um, so that's been a lot of wear and tear and then people kind of making their own social trails to social distance. Um, 
you know, and a lot of these things were already behind on maintenance funding. Um, another problem is that we've, you know, kind of seen uh, is uh, the lack of access to these opportunities. Uh, and do people feel welcome and safe if they have those opportunities near them? Um, you know, and that you know, ties back into the close to home recreation side of things, the, um, the converting, you know, brownfields and urban areas to little parks, stuff like that. Um, and then I touched on this earlier, you know, the, shut, uh, the impacts of the shutdown on government. Uh, there's no commerce, there's no taxes, there's no budget. Um, and then parks, you know, the our parks systems are kind of seen as nice to have, you know, they're not the fire department or the, the, um, you know, the police. So they're usually kind of the first ones in line to get cut. Um, but we've been able to, to see close to home recreations benefit for people's mental and physical health. Um, <clears throat> and the opportunities that, that we have to, you know, kind of wholesale convert into green infrastructure, use climate as a natural solution in new parks, uh, in urban areas. Um, yeah, I think that, oh, sorry, about the outdoors, another thing that we, um, have coming up that our industry is, uh, really engaged with, um, uh, we launched it in 2018 around the midterms. We did some ads and stuff like that last year. Um, there were some gubernatorial races uh, that were um, we had our eye on, and then a lot of those conservation funding mechanisms. So there was a lot of stuff on the ballot in 2019 for conservation funding, and over $1 billion passed at the state and local level. Um, this year we're launching a voter's guide. It'll have uh, a few endorsements. We're not doing a scorecard because that made a lot of um, our friends that we work with on both sides of the aisle angry uh, over some of the scores they got. Um, it's going to have ballot measure funding and then there's going to be a huge get out the vote push. Um, so yeah, that's kind of our government affairs work in a nutshell. Awesome. Thanks, Stuart. Um, and I'll just put a plug. If you're not registered to vote, make sure you're registered to vote and make sure you know where you're going to vote. Um, Chase, I don't know. Did we want to open it up to questions or Andrew? Yeah, if we've got, we've got time for a few questions. Um, working for OIA um, and with all these outdoor brands and the outdoor retailer shows, uh, as far as your career and the rewarding side of it, how, how has that played in? Um, you mean just kind of like the, the, the bleeding heart aspect of, of yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, from my perspective, this is a great, uh, kind of intersection of my background in education and an industry that I really love and that really drives forward the values that I, I hold personally. So um, to be able to work for an organization that is in DC and supporting, you know, climate action and supporting, um, you know, getting uh, on ramping a more diverse, inclusive workforce into the industry, um, to be able to work on those things has really been 
um, it feels good. I, you know, I mean, it's COVID has been challenging, but I think, you know, being able to work in an organization that's really doing good work and really at the end of the day wants to help support the industry, um, you know, feels, feels nice even in the, the kind of dis- difficult times. Gotcha. We got a question here from Katie. Um, what did you two do? Uh, well, what did you go to school for? And then uh, curious how you started versus where you are now. I guess your path into the industry. Stuart, you want to go first? Sure. Uh, so I got my degree in political science uh, from the University of Louisville. Uh, and I started my career in uh, politics working for the Republican Party of Kentucky. Uh, and then from there, I didn't really like, I found out I didn't really like uh, the whole partisan thing. So I went to work for uh, a chamber of commerce and started um, lobbying the state legislature there. Uh, and I really didn't like uh, lobbying for insurance companies and uh, chemical companies and stuff that I didn't really uh, support personally. And I quit and just started volunteering around um, waterways alliances and uh, trying to find my way into conservation policy and started at OAA with a fellowship like two and a half, three years ago uh, and was able to convert it to a full-time job like in March. (laughs) So like right when the shutdown happened. So it was a weird path, but... Yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. It's awesome working in this industry. I guess going back to the rewarding thing, um, you know, when we go talk to legislators and legislative staff, that they're kind of excited. And like the first thing they do is tell you what they do outside. So uh, it's a cool industry full of cool people. Um, and legislators usually like seeing you show up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so my, my story is kind of, I think, similarly windy, uh, as Stuart. So I, I went to school at DePaul University in Chicago and I majored in psychology and I was going to be a psychotherapist and we see that that worked out just exactly as planned. So, um, no, I mean, I, I majored in psychology and I worked in the, the career services office as a student employee when I was a student there. Um, and I graduated in 2008 when the economy was totally in the toilet. And I had been given an offer to basically come in and be the office manager for them. And I took it because no one else could, could find a job. Um, and so I kind of worked my way up in higher education roles. Um, and then uh, I actually met Matt Kaplan, who was my boss before here at OIA before he left last year, um, at an outdoor retailer show that I was working on behalf of C Boulder, um, and made that networking connection and kept in touch with him and was kind of working with him in partnership to try and build a bridge between OIA and C Boulder. Um, and when the job that I got came open. He sent me an email and said, do you know anyone who would be interested? And I was able to apply for it and, and get it. So um, all this to say that the path can be really, really winding, um, but 
don't burn any bridges along the way because you never know who, who could be a helpful contact uh, for you. Great. We, we have another question from Lauren. Um, <clears throat> does OIA's views on political movements clash with others in the industry often? How do you navigate those types of situations? Uh, I'm curious what political movements uh, we're talking about, but I can, uh, we, we do disagree with, you know, uh, even uh, Kristen mentioned Outdoor Recreation Roundtable, which we're a member of. Um, that's a, a, a network of other trade associations. Um, uh, <laughs> awesome. Uh, and there was, um, I'm trying to think, okay, so in California, this year, there was uh, a 30 by 30. I don't know if you all are familiar with that conservation goal. It's conserve 30% of land and water by 2030. Uh, California had a state version of that bill. We were supportive of it along with some other industry groups. Uh, a few other industry groups in outdoor recreation roundtable uh, were opposed to it. So we didn't line up there. Um, and we just, you know, we didn't work together on that thing. Uh, that doesn't mean that, you know, we were pissed at them or anything. It just, we were against each other on that. Um, in the end, I guess no one won because the bill didn't pass, but <laughs> uh, they didn't get what they wanted and we didn't get what we wanted, but it was a COVID-related um, disruption. So, you know, we'll probably have that again. Um, we do have... Uh, issues against, I mean, OIA was founded against uh, backpack tax. So a lot of the uh, more hunt and fish community um, is in favor of an excise tax on um, non-consumptive recreational equipment. So like a, a backpack or a bicycle or something, you know, getting non-consumptive recreation to pay their fair share, which we do pay a lot of taxes anyway. Congress just wasn't appropriating it. Anyway, um, we disagree with a lot of groups on that, but you know, on things like Great American Outdoors Act where we can all come together, we do. Um, I, I don't know if that answered that well enough, but <laughs> let me know if it didn't. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, I said that was great. Um, so I have one question while we're waiting on maybe one more. Um, so what's kind of OIA's role with the Outdoor Retailer Show? And, um, and how do you work together with the show? And uh, what can students expect as they kind of head towards a show like that? Or any pointers that, that you would give them as a student when they head to a show like that, what they should be doing or looking for? Uh, yeah, I can I can jump in on that. So um, that's actually a kind of a point of confusion, I think, for a lot of folks, um, outdoor retailer versus OIA. Um, and we we are not outdoor retailer. Outdoor retailer is a for-profit event organization that owns the trade show, outdoor retailer. Um, and in the before times would put that on twice a year in person in Denver. Um, so we are the title sponsor for Outdoor Retailer. We have a, a great collaborative relationship with Outdoor Retailer um, and work closely with them um, on the show. And we are kind of the, the education provider for the show. So um, the vast majority of the 
lunches and breakfasts and education sessions that you see at the show are somehow run by or facilitated by OIA and our, our network connections. Um, in terms of like going to a show, um, I mean, I think, you know, as much as we would love to have an in-person show in January, there is a chance that it will be a virtual show. And so that's going to be a totally different experience. Um, but I think what's really cool about the virtual show is that you actually have the time to get to a lot more uh, educational sessions. That's something that we've actually heard from a lot of brands who attended the virtual show in June. Um, And so if it is virtual by chance, I would say definitely take advantage of the fact that those sessions are probably easier to get to, easier to navigate than trying to like run through a sea of 30,000 people to find a room that you don't know where that is. So, um, take advantage of the opportunity to do it virtually. If you are going in person, um, I mean, I think the biggest thing to realize is that the show is really in existence because retailers need to meet with brands in order to write orders. And that's like kind of the, the, the main purpose of these shows. And so that's really why folks are at the show. Um, they're not necessarily there to have conversations with people who aren't retailers who aren't going to write an order with them. Um, so just be respectful of time, um, you know, but create opportunities for yourself to network, which are those education sessions. It is the breakfast. It is, you know, going to the lunches. Um, it is just walking the floor and seeing if you find someone who uh, doesn't look like they have anything to do. They're not taking a meeting at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's, it's quite an experience. Um, if you've never been, it's, a, it's pretty wild to walk into the convention center and see hundreds of thousands of people, um, all wearing flannel, um, and, uh, you know, walking the floor of the convention center. So. Sounds good. Thanks. Um, looks like, uh, no one's got any other questions for you and we're just about out of the normal time that we kind of allot for these. Um, so we just like to thank, Kristen and Stuart for taking the time to meet with us today. Um, well, yeah, thanks for including us. And um, yeah, I'll send that deck. And if anyone has questions, you can, you know where to find us. We're always happy yeah. to chat with students. So yeah, please reach out. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlandermag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.